Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in 3 Nephi 8-11, through where we read about the destruction in the 8th chapter and the, and the why of the destruction in the ninth chapter. And Jesus is going to testify who he is, and the Nephites are going to see Jesus. So Bryce, what would you say are some of the important points of these chapters? Well, it's always hard. This is always a melancholy chapter of the Book of Mormon because people are destroyed, and that's always a tragedy. But hopefully we can pull out of their destruction and say, here's a lesson. And I think there's a lesson in the destruction that we need to pause and talk about. So I'd like to take everyone back to Helaman, to a prophecy that Samuel the Lamanite made to the Nephites while he stood upon that wall. As he stood up there, he said, verse 12, this is Helaman thirteen twelve, and woe unto this great city Zarahemla. I'm going to focus on Zarahemla as a type and a shadow of every other city. Woe unto this great city Zarahemla, for behold, it is because of those who are righteous that it is saved. Yea, woe unto this great city, for I perceive, saith the Lord, that there are many, yea, even the more part of the city that will harden their hearts against me. But blessed are they who will repent, for I will spare them. But behold, if it were not for the righteous who are in the city, behold, I would cause that fire should come down out of heaven and destroy it. There's a prediction there. But there's also a lesson. The righteous in Zarahemla are enough to save it from destruction. Now we jump to Third Nephi and the beginning of the storm, and then here comes the massive destruction. This is the first cleansing of the earth, and we're going to temporarily make it a terrestrial state so Jesus can be here with us, So, which means we've got to eliminate the celestial element. And now we get to verse 8, Third Nephi, verse 8, the city of Zarahemla took fire. So the very prediction back in Samuel the Lamanite, but the righteous are keeping you from being destroyed. And now here's the fulfillment. Zarahemla did take fire. So what happened to the righteous? Clearly there were righteous in Zarahemla, and now there's fire. And I don't believe the righteous are going to be destroyed. We know they're not. So let's jump to chapter 10. After the destruction is over and they're sitting in the silence, they're sitting in the darkness, they are taught why they were spared. Now look at verse 12, 3 Nephi 10, 12. It was the more righteous part of the people who were saved. It was they who received the prophets and stoned them not. So let's see if we can connect all those dots and make a lesson for the Latter-day Saints, because destruction is once again coming in our day. Not only a literal physical destruction is coming, but we are seeing spiritual destructions all around us. So it seems to me that there came a day where a prophet walked into the city of Zarahemla and said, get out of town. And they left. And after they left, now the protection that the righteous were bringing is gone and the city is destroyed. But here's my point of pondering. What do you suppose was the weather when the prophet came in and said, get out of town? Do you think there was any sign of fire? And I'm sure that if anyone overheard the prophet, which I'm sure he tried to save the whole city, And I'm sure the prophet went in there and said, this city's going to burn. And there was absolutely no sign of fire. Would you have left the city? Would you leave with no sign of fire? Now, back in section 21, where the Lord is organizing the church and talking about having a prophet, seer, and revelator, he said that we need to receive the prophet's word in all patience and faith. And I think that's one of the great lessons is if you want to avoid the destruction, then you need to receive the prophet's words when there's no fire. Noah told the people to get on the boat, and it didn't start to rain for seven days until after they got on. Would you have walked onto a boat in the middle of the land with not a cloud in the sky? 
would you have left Zarahemla with no sign of fire? In the Doctrine and Covenants, if you'll turn briefly to section 101, where the Lord is trying to explain what happened in Jackson County and why the Jackson County saints were were removed from their lands, he gives this very interesting statement in verses 7 and 8. Section 101, 7 and 8, he says, "...they were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God." Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers, to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel. But in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they feel after me. Prophets speak in the day of peace. When there's no fire to be seen, there's no cloud in the sky, And it requires patience and faith. Because if you wait to leave Zarahemla in the day of trouble, when the fire has started, it's too late. If you get on Noah's boat when it's raining, it's too late. You can't. The door has been shut and sealed. You and I must learn to follow a prophet in the day of peace. So that when the day of trouble comes... We qualify for the blessings. I think that's one great lesson that's coming out of the destruction. There's, it's, it's a tragedy to hear about the destruction of these cities and these lives. But they were warned. Prophet after prophet after prophet warned them. And if Zarahemla's any indication, a prophet came, but a prophet came in the day of peace. So learn to follow a prophet in the day of peace with patience and faith. Get out of Zarahemla spiritually when the prophet says, get out of Zarahemla, even though you look around and you don't see any reason for leaving the city. It was those who followed the prophet. Now, let me just turn that to our day. I I think the Lord is saying here that no matter what's coming, we will always be warned. There's a beautiful phrase in Doctrine and Covenants section 29, verse 8, is something I always read when we talk about the second coming and future destructions. The Lord says that we will be prepared in all things against the day when wrath and tribulation are poured out upon the wicked. We will be prepared in all things. That means prophets will have warned us no matter what's coming. But I think what the Book of Mormon is trying to teach here is that the prophet's warning will come in a day of peace not in a day of trouble. And if, you, if you're if you waiting for the day of trouble, if you're waiting to see the fire, the evidence, before you leave the city, it will be too late. But I, I, I testify with all my soul, I know that everyone who listens to the prophet will be prepared for whatever comes. Because the righteous, when this district, notice what city wasn't destroyed. They're all headed to Bountiful where the temple is. And so they're not going to be destroyed by the fire of Zarahemla or the water or the mountain falling upon them because they've been sent to a place that was safe. We will be sent to a place that's safe, whether that's literally or spiritually or symbolically. Prophets will always warn us of the coming danger, but they will warn us when there is no fire in the sky. One of the things, Bryce, that really hit me when you were talking was this idea that they're invited to leave. And we're going to do this when we do Doctrine and Covenants. But you see this pattern where the Lord's pushing the saints west. He keeps pushing them. He pushes them. And then I think it's section 38, right, where he gets to tell them, you're going to be in Ohio, but it's going to be for five years. And then there's that reference where he says, you you talk about wars in foreign lands, but there's war coming right here. And so we've seen, even in our dispensation, a physical moving. Which is interesting, because if you really think about what he was doing, he moved the saints out west in time for the Civil War. Out of the way. So right when the United States was going to destroy each other in a war, he had moved his people out of the way. And then he started moving everyone you know, back into wherever they came from. And so it's fascinating to know that the Lord knows where we should be, and he does. He pushes us physically to where we're going to be safe. Yeah. 
One of the things that hits me in these chapters, in the ninth chapter, it's this repeated concept over and over again where God says, I've got to destroy these cities. I must destroy them from before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints should not come up unto me anymore against them. And he says it again and again. It's repeated throughout the ninth chapter. And that's a very Hebrew-type expression that is mostly edited out of the Old Testament. In the English translation, we only get four references to it. That's it. Today, we only have four. In the King James, in the English. That have survived. But it's repeated so much, but it's in the English only four times. To me, 3 Nephi 9 is the most Old Testament-ish chapters because it portrays God as kind of a vengeful God. He's destroying cities. I think that's one of the interesting distinctions between the Book of Mormon and the Old Testament that we have is in the Book of Mormon, typically it's the wicked destroying the wicked. But if you read, for example, the Book of Joshua, we have Yahweh or Jehovah commanding the Israelites to go and just wreck these people, and it's a very troubling text. But here we get some of that flavor. But then he always says, okay, this is why I'm doing it. I must destroy them from before my face that the blood of the prophets doesn't come up. And it just is just repeated over and over again. And then if you look in verse 14, come unto me, we're in 359, and you shall have eternal life. Mine arm of mercy is extended towards you. So to me, the Book of Mormon is a book with layers, and this is code speak. This stuff before my face, this is all temple text. So to be before the face of Yahweh is literally to be in his presence. And so Jesus is going to come to these people, and they're not prepared to be before his face because they're killing his representatives. And so they're not going to be worthy when he comes. So Bryce, I really do believe this. The people that see Jesus in 3511, I don't think they're just seeing him because they happen to be there. I don't think it's just by chance that these survived, right? Right. They have qualified themselves to be before the face of God. And this is what prophets do. This is what Moses does. And this is what he wants to do to the Israelites continually through the narrative in Exodus, where he wants to bring them before the face of God. And like I said, this is totally edited out of our King James, but... But it is in the Doctrine and Covenants, and let me read from the Doctrine and Covenants. Ready? I am reading from section 84, verse... Let's start in verse 19, where it says, "...this greater priesthood administereth the gospel and holdeth the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom." Verse 20, "...in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest." It's talking about God wants to bless us. Verse 22, "...for without this no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live." And then verse 23, Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness, and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. There it is. That's exactly what Mike is talking about. That's the end point. That Moses invited them to be sanctified so that they could behold the face of God. Unfortunately, verse 24, they hardened their hearts, could not endure his presence. Therefore, the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rest is the fullness of his glory. And that's what you're seeing in Third Nephi chapter nine, 8 and 9, is I am removing them out of my presence, yeah. out of my face. I have to do that. It's a tough reading, but it's there, which draws us to the positive side. The positive side of this is these people are going to behold the face of God, and it's going to be an invitation for the rest of us to have this experience. And the Lord has really said, um, in the Doctrine and Covenants, hey, this is how it, this is how it works, and these people have qualified themselves for this experience. Yeah. And just like Latter Day Saints, we sit in a position right where they were before the destruction came. Here we are coming up into the destruction, and if we are faithful, the promise is that we will be preserved, that God will be with us. He'll tell us exactly what we need to do to be protected and safe, so that we see the face of God just like they did. This is our time. And that we need to say, wait a minute, what is it that they did to behold the face of God so that I know what I need to do to behold the face of God? One of the, one of the images of this experience is exactly what 3 Nephi 9.14 is saying, where he says, my arm of mercy is extended towards you. That is symbolic of the embrace of God. He's inviting us into an embrace to be covered literally by his blood, by the blood of Christ, but by his robes and to be brought into his family to become the sons of God. That is a ritualistic expression, which means 
we're in the family of the exalted. And so this is all drenched in temple symbolism, rich with ritual patterns and and teaching us about God and the temple and these sacred experiences. And so I'm glad that when Joseph translated it, he left that in there. I am too. It's good stuff. So these are tough chapters. These are. And at the end of chapter nine, not only is this kind of a destruction, but it's also a change. This represents the end of the law of Moses. We are, the law of Moses is dying and the law of Jesus is being born. And so we're shifting. The temple's going to shift. The ordinances are going to shift. The Sabbath day is going to shift. They used to worship on Saturday. They will now worship on Sunday. Everything's shifting. And so we as Latter-day Saints, sometimes we don't appreciate what shifted. And so at the very end of chapter nine, I want to talk about one of those major shifts and how it impacts our lives today. In verse 19, the Savior says, okay, we're done. We're done with the laws, uh, the, the sacrifices of the law of Moses. So he says, ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away, for I will accept none of them. I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. No more. I won't do that anymore. The law of Moses is over. But the law of sacrifice isn't over. It's just how you re- how you live the law. And so he says, let's change it. Verse 20, instead of animal sacrifice, from here on out, you will offer unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, I'll baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And so we no longer bring animals to the temple to be sacrificed. We instead offer a broken heart. But sometimes we don't talk a lot about that or take a moment to think about what is the offering of a broken heart. Now, we've talked about the law of Moses in the past, and there's some great resources out there that will help you find meaning in the law of Moses. But the idea is they were to take an animal to the temple, kill it, and offer it on the altar. And we are being asked to do that in two ways. First of all, Jesus was the animal. They were reminded that Jesus was killed on the altar so that we can be saved. But they were also supposed to be taking the animal inside them. Animal sacrifice was never about the animal. It was about the animal inside us. And they were being asked to take the animal inside us, the natural man, and to offer the natural man on the altar and to kill it. So the Savior says, I still want that. I just don't want you to use animals to do it. So we need to be a little bit more overt in our understanding of what God is asking. He is asking for me to break my heart. Now, we break our hearts like we break a horse. Mike, have you ever broken a horse? You know, I can barely ride a horse. <laughs> I'm so uncoordinated, Bryce. I, it, if Stuart Curtis is listening to this, that man changed my life because I grew up next to a horse stable. And I watched them break horses. I watched the difference between a tame horse and a not-so-tame horse. And I want everyone to picture a, a wild horse. Now, why would we... Why would we break a wild horse? Some people think that it's, it's selfish, it, it's cruelty to the horse, but I saw firsthand that horses live better and happier lives under the care of a loving master. I think Peter might argue with you, but go on, Bryce. <laughs> I know there are cruel masters. I know there are. I know there are cruel masters, but I watched my friend lovingly take care of these horses, and I realized that he could take better care of them than they could take of themselves. I watched him shoe horses, and I realized that a horse's hoof is like my—imagine a really big fingernail that grows and cracks and splits and becomes painful. And I watched him lovingly shoe these horses, not for his sake, but for the horse's sake, because they, they are happier when their hooves are trimmed. I watched him feed them, and not just, not just what they could get, but what they needed— And I came to the conclusion that a horse will live much better under the care of a loving master. And all of a sudden I realized that's what a broken heart means. What is it that we're breaking when we break a horse? We don't break its will. We don't break its spirit. I watched a lot of spirited horses that were very tame. And they 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 had a will and they had a spirit. So what is it that we break when we break a horse? I came to realize that what we break is this idea in the horse's head 
that it's better off on its own. That's what needs to be broken. I once had a student in Arizona who was raised on a a ranch, and she told a fascinating story that she lived up in the mountains of Arizona, and one day they had a, a broken horse in the corral with a horse they wanted to break, so a wild horse and a broken horse together. And then there was a massive storm, and both horses got out of the corral and got wrapped up in barbed wire. And can you guess what the wild horse did? The wild horse pushed and pulled and struggled because what's in his head? What's the wild horse thinking? I have to get out of this. I'm on my own. But in pushing and pulling, it cut itself so badly that horse ended up having to be put down. It could not be saved. Can you guess what the broken horse did as soon as it was wrapped up in barbed wire? It stood there. It waited. As if it knew in its head, I cannot do this alone. And it waited for someone to help. And what Heavenly Father is asking us, ever since we no longer take the animal in us to the temple and burn it on the altar, he's asking that we break our hearts and that we break the silly idea in our heads that we're better off on our own, that I can do it on my own because we're not. We will live happier lives under the care of a loving Heavenly Father. And we have to break that idea. And so the very first thing we do at the sacrament table every single Sunday is we watch a young man who represents Jesus pick up a piece of bread, which represents Jesus, and break it. And now all of a sudden that bread represents my heart. And I am supposed to break my heart. And I'm supposed to break the silly idea in my head that I I am smarter than God and that my way is better than his and that I know what's best for me instead of yielding to his commandments. As that bread is broken, because Jesus was broken, I commit to break myself, my break, my natural man. I break my heart and I say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I'm that horse wrapped up in barbed wire that just sits there and says, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. I need it every single day of my life. And that's a broken heart. And that is the offering that we are supposed to take. That kind of reminds me of Truman G. Madsen where he said, in the scriptural usage, a broken heart is malleable, meltable, a movable heart. And a contrite spirit is an honest, acknowledging spirit that says, I am, in fact, dependent. There is not self-deprecation here, only honesty. Just like you said, I need help. And when that is acknowledged, help comes. I love that quote. I think that that is why God is totally okay with putting us in really tough circumstances. As I've studied Joseph Smith's life, how many times does the Lord give him something to do that Joseph has no capability of performing on his own? And so in a way, it's God saying that he trusts us to have this like the symbiotic relationship with him where we do what we can, but we cry out to him. And by offering our heart, I really think, Bryce, this is another a nuance of pistis or faith this idea, this connection of reciprocity, where you're doing something and God's doing something and it's this dance and it's it, symbolically, ritually, it's taking someone by the hand. And he, it's like Jesus reaching out to Peter and he says, take my hand. And Jesus pulls Peter out of the chaos of the water into an embrace. It's like Nephi building a boat where the Lord says, build a boat. And Nephi has never in his life built a boat. There's no way he could have built a boat. But I know how to build tools. Yeah. And so Nephi's part of the dance is, okay, I'll start by making some tools. But even that, I don't know where to go. Where do I go to get the metal for tools? Because I don't have any metal. And so there's that dance between I'll do all that I can, but Lord, I need you. I need your help. And I love that we sing, I need thee every hour. Oh, I need thee. And it's that recognition that I can't build this boat unless you help me, Lord. I can't raise these children unless you help me. 
I can't get my ward back to the Celestial Kingdom unless you help me. I can't teach these students that are sitting in front of me unless you help me. Lord, I can't even get myself back there unless you help me. It's that breaking of the heart that brings, as the Lord promised at the very end of nine, if you have a broken heart, then you get the Spirit. I will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. It's the breaking of our hearts that qualifies us for the help he wants to send. Now that you know you can't do it on your own, I'm going to send help. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about verse 19. In the ancient world, when you went to the temple, it would have smelled like a barbecue. Before Jesus dies, there was always something cooking at the temple. And the reason why is because, well, the priests had to eat and you had to offer the offering. And they're not just killing the animal, they're cooking it, they're eating it. And the hides are valuable and the hides are given to the priests. And so it's this massive production. And before Jesus comes to them, a year before, it actually says about a year passed. But Mormon's going to construct the text so it almost looks like it was just three days. But if you do a careful reading, look in verse 5 of chapter 8, that it's the 30 and 4th year of the first month on the 4th day. But then if you go to 1018 that it was the ending of the 30 and 4th year. So at the New Year's celebration, about a year later, Jesus is going to come. So a year before he's coming, he says, hey, we're done. No more shedding of blood. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, and this is not in the text, but I think this is happening. I think what happens is the Lord's administrators have heard the voice. The author, Mormon, tells us, if you look in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says that the voice was heard among all the inhabitants. So however that works, they heard it. So they've got to totally repackage the temple at Bountiful. It's got to be reconstructed and it's got to be rededicated. And when you rededicate a temple, you do it at the new year and you usher in your officers. And it's a, it's a big deal anciently. And everybody comes to this and that's partly why they're there. And so in chapter 11, it says that they get there and it says, that they had, they were marveling and wondering one with another and showing one to another the, the great and marvelous change which had taken place. Now, clearly there are some changes in the land, but I think a big part of this is if your whole life you were used to this certain way of doing things at the temple and then God said, hey, we're doing it this way, they probably had all kinds of questions like, what does this mean and what are we doing? And I think this was a big part of their culture. Now, back to the sacrifices, They ate the animal, they cooked it, and they ate it. And so in chapter 9, and it doesn't say it in here, but it says this stuff, kind of stuff going on in Exodus, in the Exodus narrative in chapter 24, the, the culmination of meeting God, it actually ended in a feast. And so it says that Yahweh or Jehovah and Moses and Aaron and and uh, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, they, they got together and they had this massive feast and this feast is talked about in the book of Revelation, and it's talked about in section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And this is what it means to have table communion. You see, we just don't eat with just anyone. I remember as a young man, sometimes going on a date and my date wouldn't eat. And you're like, what's wrong, right? Because guys, we just like to eat food, right? Well, we eat around people that we feel safe with. And in the ancient world, they would have this temple drama and they would portray the creation and the battle with chaos and the death of Jehovah and his resurrection. And it culminated in a feast. And anciently, the king, because he was rich, he would feed everybody. He would provide the food. Now, Joseph doesn't know any of this. He's never been exposed to any of these studies of how they did temple worship in Samaria or in Israel or in Egypt. And they're all doing this. All the cultures are doing this. But if you do a careful reading of the third Nephi narrative, It says that on the final feast, Jesus provided the food. And Mormon makes a point to tell you this because Mormon knows this stuff. It's the ancient temple drama. It's like to a T. The Book of Mormon's putting this all in there. Now, some say that maybe we've removed that, right? We go and get endowed. There's no feast. But if you take your children and get an endowment. What do you always do afterwards? Yeah. And, And think about church. Every week we are practicing the feast at church and the Lord says, come. Now we're not eating a goat or a bull, but it ritually we're practicing the temple in church. We're getting used to these ideas. And so there's going to be a big shift, but the principles and the doctrines behind the ritual 
are the same. And so Jesus is going to try to lay this out. And I sometimes think we don't realize what a big change this would have been for them because we're on the other side of it. We've had 2,000 years of Christian history. But if you and I lived at this time, we would probably have lots of questions and we would have maybe some concerns and everything's changed. And so Jesus is going to come and he's going to rededicate the temple and we're going to put Nephi in charge. We're going to do all the things that they would do anciently at the New Year's ceremony to initiate a new order. And anciently, everyone's talking about this. There is no order without law. And there is no law and there is no order without God. And the origin of all of this is the temple. So all this is happening in these chapters. And that leads us to chapter 11, where the Savior comes. And this is a literal and a symbolic moment. So they've come out of the darkness. They've come out. They listened to the prophets. They heeded the warnings. They came out of Zarahemla. They went where they were told. They've made covenants. They've, they've broken their hearts. And now this is the reward. This is the embrace. This is being with Jesus. And so beforehand, they hear a voice, but they don't hear a voice. And I think this is very symbolic here. Verse 2, while they were conversing about this Jesus Christ, of whom the sign had been given concerning his death, it came to pass that while they were conversing, they heard a voice as if it came out of heaven, and they cast their eyes round about, for they understood not the voice which they heard. Now tell me that's not symbolic of all of us sometimes, that he's crying out to us. He's trying to speak to us, and we're not hearing, we're not understanding. How many times does the Lord reach out to us? Now, the problem is it's not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear it to the very center, in that no part of them or their frame, it it, it didn't cause them to quake. So notice what they do. Verse 4, they hear it again and they don't understand it. Verse 5, they hear the voice again and they did open their ears. Now, how do you open your ear? Your ears are already opened. But I think the symbolism is you have to focus. You you have to choose to hear God. He can talk to you, but until you open your ears and choose to hear him, you're going to miss the message. And so they choose to hear him. And now they recognize the voice. It's the voice of the Father. Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. Verse 8, they see a man descending down. Now we're with Christ. This is the pinnacle. This is the moment. And his first words are, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And I love what he says first. I am the light and the life of the world. I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me. In other words, the atonement is complete. I did what I was asked to do, and your salvation is now possible. I drank the cup, is what he said. So the multitude falls down. I think we all would. And then the Lord says the following. Verse 14, arise and come forth that you may thrust your hands into my side, that you may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that you may know that I am the God of Israel, the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. Now notice those verbs. In verse 15, it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side, and did feel the nail marks of the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet, and this they did do going forth. Now we're going to come back to this phrase. But I'd like to do the other verbs first. So they come forth one by one till they all all gone. Now notice the verbs at the end of verse 15. This is the symbolic invitation that Jesus is making to every one of us today. Not a hundred years from now, not 50 years from now, not whenever the second coming occurs. Here's the invitation. See with your eyes. Come and see. See the restoration. See his prophet. See him. Feel, know of a surety, and then go bear record. Look at the verbs at the end of verse 15. See, feel, know, and bear record. Now, I love to turn those around because Jesus sees us, and Jesus feels our pain, and Jesus knows what's going on in our life. 
And then I love in verse 17 that he prays unto the Father for the children. He bears record of us, of our hearts, our attitude. And therefore, we now need to see him. You've got to see Jesus. You've got to feel him and know so that you can bear record. You bear record to your children. You bear record to your classes. You bear record to the world. I have seen. I have felt. I know. And those verbs, I think, are the very essence of what he invites us to do. And Jesus sees, feels, and knows. And he bears record. He bears record to the Father of all we do in his name. Now, going back to the previous phrase, what I love is one verse of the Book of Mormon reveals such an insight into the character of Christ. That middle phrase in verse 15, this they did do going forth one by one until they all. Jesus is a one by one until they all kind of God. We always film Jesus walking down the steps and people just reach out and touch his hands. That is not what happened. It was a one by one. And I think this is a foreshadowing of what's coming. Whether it's symbolic or literal, every one of you will have a one by one meeting with Jesus. I get my moment with him. I get to be with him and embrace him. And this is the culmination of everything I did in my life to get there and everything he did in his life to get me there. And it's a one-on-one. And I will get to feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet. And I will know. And I, I always think about Bruce Hart McConkie said, when he said, in the coming day, I shall feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet. And then he said, but I shall not know any better than then I know now that he is God's almighty son. I think about that a lot. I want to know no more in my one-on-one moment with Jesus when I finally have that one-on-one and I feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet. I want to know no more, no better than, than I know today that he is Christ. He is a one by one until they all. And if you want to see that pattern, you go to chapter 17. What does he do with the children? One by one, until they all. You want to see it again? You go to chapter 28 with the disciples. He takes them all one by one, until they all. Makes me think of the temple. In the temple. If you have that experience where you take a name and you take a a One by one, yep. And you're like, okay, I'm taking this person through and... How many times do you hear their name? Yeah. He doesn't save the whole group. He doesn't pull the whole group through. He pulls them through one by one. And you have that brief moment with him in an embrace. And then he pulls you into his presence. You know, I every time I feel the Holy Ghost testify of who he is, it's kind of a sacred one-on-one. And I like to think that maybe it's a an angel from the other side that just kind of comes and says, Mike, I know you've heard. I know you felt, but here it is again. And you can never tell me that enough. I could never feel the Holy Ghost enough. This is great scripture. And I love that they come one by one. Notice what they say in verse 17. Hosanna is a fancy way of saying, God save us. And anciently they would sing Psalm number 60 in the temple to kind of foreshadow this experience. Psalm 60 reads, Oh God, you've cast us off. You've scattered us. You've been displeased. Turn thyself to us again. You've made the earth to tremble. You've broken it. Heal the breaches thereof, for it shaketh. Thou hast showed thy people hard things. Thou hast made us to drink the wine of astonishment. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth, that thy beloved may be delivered. Save with thy right hand and hear me. Psalm 61 through 5. In other words, take your right hand and save us, the right hand of power. And so verse 17 is right in line with Psalm 60. They cry out, save us. They fall down at his feet and they worship him. And he's manifest as the king, the king of heaven and earth, the God of nature, as First Nephi 19.12 says. He has suffered, but he is victorious. Now, 
anciently when they did this, when the new year came and they rededicated the temple, they would do essentially five things. They would cite their divine calling. They would issue new laws. They would ordain officers, erect monuments, and enter into a new legal order. This is what they did in the temple anciently. And four of these five things anciently are right here in 3 Nephi. We're going to have a new order. We're going to ordain an officer. Nephi is going to be the head apostle. We're going to issue new laws. Jesus is going to explain, hey, this law of Moses, which I'm so grateful of the Book of Mormon and its simplicity. There's 613 laws of Moses that are canonized in the Old Testament, and the Book of Mormon doesn't read that way. Personally, I don't think all 613 are necessarily inspired. It's kind of a complex mess. It's a lot of stuff. But Jesus basically says the gospel is going to be pretty simple, and he's even going to define it. Do they erect a new monument? No, but they rededicate this temple. And Jesus is going to tell them of their divine calling, and they're going to enter into a new order. And so, Bryce, sometimes this can be complicated for people, and they read this and they say, why would Jesus be giving Nephi the priesthood power? Why would he do this? In verse 21, I give unto you power that you should baptize, because clearly Nephi has baptized. He has raised the dead. So why do you think verse 21 is there? I think the Lord does the same thing in our day. He says, look, baptism isn't just for coming into the church. That's one reason we get baptized. But baptism is a do-over. Baptism is a renewal. Baptism is a let's take the covenant again. And so every time there's a change, the Lord says, okay, let's sign the new deal. We've added a few provisions to the contract. We've changed a few things. Could we all re-sign the deal and make sure we're all on board? Now, in our day, the signing of the deal is the sacrament. But we do the same thing. The Lord constantly says, let's renew that same covenant. I want to make sure you're still on board. You've grown. You're older now. You're more mature now. Do you still agree to the terms? Are we still on the same page? And so we re-sign the deal every single time we take the sacrament. Well, anciently, even in the early days of the church, they would baptize as a sign of a renewal. Uh, Brigham Young kind of felt like when they got to Salt Lake that they had kind of fallen into apostasy. So he called for the entire church to be re-baptized as a sign of renewal and recommitment. And so Jesus is doing the same thing yeah. with the changes that have occurred in the temple, with Nephi, with the law of Moses being ended. He says, I want all of you to be rebaptized. Yeah, so this order. isn't a, here, Nephi, you didn't have the priesthood before, so here it is. Oh, and no one's been baptized, so let's go baptize them. That's not the situation at all. Nephi, who holds the priesthood, who has the keys of the kingdom, has just been appointed as the key holder, has the new prophet, and as a are we all on board? Can we all go back and be baptized? And there's some great quotes we'll put in the show notes from some of the brethren, particularly Joseph Fielding Smith, saying all this stuff that, of course, Nephi held the priesthood, but this is just being acknowledged again publicly. And anciently, this was not a big deal. This is just kind of how it worked out. Today, I think maybe a modern equivalent in the church would be the sustaining of officers. We all publicly acknowledge before God and each other that we acknowledge President Nelson as the president of the church, as the duly authorized administrator, the, the representative of God. Which is why we call the first conference when we sustain a prophet for the very first time a solemn assembly. Okay. And we handle it a little bit differently. There's been a change at the top, and we are all put under covenant to sustain the new prophet. It's the same idea. Yeah. So he says a few times, this is how you're going to baptize. I'm not going to read those. But he does emphasize this, that there shall be no disputations. There seems to be something with their culture around them, causing them some contention about baptism, and it's not going to end here. Later in the Book of Mormon, there is these letters between Mormon and Moroni. Clearly, there's something going on culturally that they're struggling with. I find this fascinating because at the same time in Christianity, in the old world, they're struggling with some of the same kinds of questions regarding baptism that we'll look at later in future podcasts. But just know that Jesus is laying down the simplicity of the of the ordinance and says, don't have disputations. But then notice what he says in verse 27. He says, I say unto you that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one, and I am in the Father and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. This is really the first time the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are mentioned in the same verse. Um, that there was a Heavenly Father to God, 
Yahweh or Jehovah, did not figure in the main religious thought of a lot of these people in the old world or in the new until the presence of Jesus on earth required shedding some light on these relationships. From this point on, it's going to change. The presence of Jehovah, Messiah on earth, with a father who announced his son from the heavens, forcibly returned God the Father, the Most High God, El Elyon, as he's referred to in the Hebrew, to the forefront of the religious consciousness of these people and required that their theology clarify his place. Therefore, from this point on, the Book of Mormon is going to identify the relationships of these three. The simple association of the Messiah as the one God is replaced by a Godhead with an important father-son relationship and distinction. This same shift occurred for the apostles in the old world and for the same reason. The presence of the Messiah on earth with the simultaneous presence of a deity up in the heavens proclaiming who he is required some kind of a conceptual repackaging or restructuring. And so later on throughout the Book of Mormon, they're going to draw out these distinctions. We even read it later in this chapter where we read about the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost being one. And I'm totally understanding of our fellow Christians who sometimes don't see things the way we do because Scripture can be tricky and it's not always the same. And in the Book of Mormon, pretty much Jesus is called the Father and the Son. If you read Mosiah 15 and some of the other things, and that's kind of how he's portrayed. He's he the f- is the Father of certain things. Yes. He's not the Father of our spirits, right? but he is the Father of certain things, like our salvation, like our rebirth, like Cosmos, this earth. Yeah. He created this earth. So he is the Father of certain things. But Heavenly Father is the Father of our spirits. Let's be very clear. Yeah. And so, yeah, you find those terms used kind of interchangeably with regard to Jesus sometimes. It's even right there in 36, right? Later in the chapter, it says, Thus the Father will bear record of me, and the Holy Ghost will bear record of him, of the Father, unto him, of the Father and me, and the Father and I and the Holy Ghost are one. So Jesus is really drawing out these distinctions, and I'm totally okay with people that maybe disagree with us. I understand it can be tricky, but to, to me, just to clarify, yes, we have a heavenly father. He is the father of Jesus, but Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And frankly, the Holy Ghost really isn't expressly demarcated in the Old Testament. It's kind of tricky, and there are some different terms there, but Jesus is defining it, and he's defining terms. And so in the future chapters, he's going to talk more about his identity, his father, the role of the Holy Ghost. And you're going to hear this phrase a lot. It kind of comes up at the end of chapter 11, where he says, hey, this is my doctrine. And let me explain what my doctrine is. And let me point out that every time he does that, he's pointing out the oneness of the three of them. He always says, we are one, we are one, which means we are one in mind, one in thought, one in purpose, one in desire. The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one. I find it very significant It should not be surprising that the very first real teaching he gives is that there be no contention. He comes down, he teaches them to baptize, and then he says, the Father and I are one. And he rebukes the contention that is among them. And so I just think we all need to understand that Jesus cannot be, is not the source of contention. He says in verse 29, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And so if we live in a contentious society, if we live in a contentious home, that is not of God, that is not of Jesus. Jesus does not contend, and he doesn't stir up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. So practical rubber hits the road advice, Bryce. What do you say to somebody who's like, we're swimming in this world of contention? And notice he's about to do that because the next three chapters will teach just because they do it to you doesn't mean you have to do it to them. They may be contentious to us, but we cannot return contention for contention. We cannot deal with contentious people by being contentious. So we're back to don't be a second striker. We're back to don't be a a second striker. If you live in a contentious environment, we have to find a way to overcome the contention. We have to find a way to overcome division. And I just think that's significant that the very first thing he comes down. Now, we're going to get a whole bunch of chapters on teachings. But after all the ordinances, after he establishes Nephi and he gets the baptism going and he's really starting to teach, 
He chooses that topic to begin with. That seems to send a message to all of us. In our homes, in social media, how we work, we, are, we cannot be contentious because contention is not of the Father. They are one with each other as we are supposed to be one with each other. So I think that's very significant. I want to talk a little bit about the silence. If you look at chapter 10, so before Jesus comes to the Nephites, we read in verse 2, For so great was the astonishment of the people that they did cease lamenting and howling for the loss of their kindred, which had been slain. Therefore, there was silence in all the land for the space of many hours. I want to just bring your minds to section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we read about the second coming of Jesus. And so the Book of Mormon is a type. Third Nephi 10 and 11 would be parallel to the second coming of Jesus. And so in the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says this. Immediately, this is verse 93. Immediately there shall appear a great sign in heaven, and all people shall see it together. Skip down to verse 95. There shall be silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. And immediately after shall the curtain of heaven be unfolded as a scroll is unfolded after it is rolled up, and the face of the Lord shall be unveiled. And then it goes on. The saints that are upon the earth who are alive shall be quickened and caught up to meet him. Now, our dear Christian friends, not of our exact faith, call this the rapture. And that comes out of Second Thessalonians. Um, but And so if somebody asks you, do you believe in the rapture? What they're asking you is, do you believe that the saints that are upon the earth when Jesus comes again will be caught up and quickened and caught up to meet him? And we would say, well, well certainly. Verse 97, they who have slept in their graves shall come forth for their graves shall be opened and they shall be caught up to meet him in the midst of the pillar of heaven. Sometimes we get caught up into questions about, well, what does half an hour mean? What does it mean to be silent for half an hour? And I think maybe what we're talking about is the silence that comes before the king walks in. Think of when the president of the church walks into a room and you're in the room. We stand and we're silent and we do it out of respect for the office and the individual, particularly for God. Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And literally, it has that phrase. It's translated out, but literally it says, before the face of him. It uses panim, before the face. Why? Well, if you're before the face of God, you're about to see him. He's in his holy temple, as Habakkuk 2.20 says. And so the idea of silence has not only the connotation of awe and reverence, but also a worshipful meaning. As one scholar noted, the proper attitude of the highest heavenly beings in the face of the divine presence is a silent worship of God, and they're uttering the prescribed formula of blessing. And so anciently, there was this notion that in the temple, many portions of it, of the festal drama, were silent. There was a letter that was written by a Jew in the second century before Jesus, and his name was Aristius. And he talks about this, where he says that there was a lot of silence associated with the temple, specifically when the high priest who represented God walked before them. And it was to the point where the only thing that really they heard were the bells attached to his robe. And he says that it gave out a particular sound of a musical tone because of the silence of the worshipers in the liturgy. And I find that fascinating. Those bells that would kind of jingle as the high priest walked to do the part of the ritual was a way to draw their mind to their coming into the presence of God. They're in sacred space. And so if you read that in chapter 10, verse 1, this idea of silence, I really like that. And then it leads to this very puzzling verse. For years, I remember reading this going, what do chickens have to do with this? Look at verse 5. Jesus says, How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? Yea, ye people of the house of Israel who have fallen. Yea, O ye people of the house of Israel, ye that dwell at Jerusalem, as ye that have fallen. Yea, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens? And you would not. And then he goes on and he talks about wings and chickens. This is also reminiscent of the Psalms. In the Psalms, they would use many of these as part of the temple liturgy. And so in the 91st Psalm, this is what we read. He that dwells in the secret place, 
or the Holy of Holies, of the Most High, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings thou shalt trust. And then it goes on. But essentially the image that we have is the image of being brought under the shadow of his wings, under his feathers. And you have to think about the cherubim with their wings, with their feathers. This would represent a covering. And coming into that covering, you're coming into the Holy of Holies. You're coming into the presence of God from the perspective of the author of Psalm 91. This is from LeGrand Baker. He says, On the seventh day of the festal drama, the king would sit on the throne of God in the temple. The throne was overshadowed by the great golden wings of the cherubim. Thus, to be invited to come under the Savior's wings was the same thing as being invited to sit on his throne as his son and heir, as spoken of in Psalm 2. This was the invitation the Savior referred to as he spoke in the darkness, and that is the invitation he would issue again when he came to his temple. And I would extend this to all of us. This is his invitation to us, that we be invited into his presence. And then LeGrand Baker goes on where he says that Mormon is carefully constructing his narrative, so it's almost like you miss that a year passes. Mormon writes in such a way that we just kind of see three days of darkness and then Jesus comes. But it was a year. But the point that LeGrand Baker is making is that Mormon is using this to point our minds to the temple. And so he says, Mormon again picked up the pattern of the temple drama. During the three days when the king was in the confines of death, the drama turned its focus from the king to the Psalms that told of the Savior's life, death, atonement, and resurrection. So what does Mormon do? Mormon maintained that exact sequence of thought by quoting the prophecies of Zenos, Zenic, and Jacob with reference to the coming of Christ. That's 35, 10, 12 through 17. Their testimonies provided a kind of conjunction that allowed Mormon's narrative to move from the events that began on the fourth day of the 34th year to the ending of the 30 and 4th year. So that's 35, 8 and 5, 35, 10 and 18, without any break in the continuity of his thought. Even though a year passes, he could now pick up the sequence of the festival in the same place where he had left it. And I agree with LeGrand Baker. There's a very deliberate pattern, and he's showing us sacred space. He's showing us the sequence of events, and it's a specific pattern. There's a new temple. There's a new Jerusalem. There's a new king. And so that's all there. And it would would have been very clear to these ancients that lived there. Also, there are these prerequisites to see the Savior, and I really do believe that these people, these 2,500 people there in 3 Nephi 11, have met that criteria. And it's really designated in section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, forsake your sins, call on his name, obey his voice, and keep his commandments. It's also in Ether 12.7 about this idea of having faith in God or being pure in heart in Matthew 5.8. Section 84 talks about, in verse 20 through 22, receiving the ordinances qualifies us to be finished, to be complete, and to be qualified to seeing the Savior. At the very end, after he gives power to baptize, and after he talks about his doctrine and becoming a little child, he says this, verse 40 of chapter 11, Whoso shall declare more or less than this and establish it for my doctrine, the same cometh of evil and is not built upon my rock." But he buildeth upon a sandy foundation, and the gates of hell stand open to receive such when the floods come and the winds beat upon them. This is reminiscent of Matthew 16, but it reads differently. In Matthew 16, Jesus speaks with his disciples and he asks them who he is. And we all know the verse, right? Where they say, You know, some people say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elias or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. That's Matthew 16, 14. And then Jesus's question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Peter says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven, you've received this by revelation. Verse 18, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there's lots of ink spilled on what that means. But go to verse 19. I give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. 
if you take a good look at verse 18 and 19, he's giving Peter the sealing power. But in verse 18, it reads different than the end of 3 Nephi 11. In 3 Nephi 11, there's this warning that the gates of hell will stand open to receive such that go off the path. In verse 18 of Matthew 16, he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what is it? Is it the rock? Is it the church? Like I said, there's a lot of ink spilled here. But the point that I want to draw out is this idea that Jesus is actually proclaiming war on the forces of Hades or the forces of of hell. In the New Testament context, from my reading of the New Testament and some of this Enoch literature and some of this apocryphal extra-biblical literature that's outside the Bible, Jesus is essentially claiming his right to take possession of the earth against the forces of darkness. They're going to be called the watchers in some of this literature. He's declaring war against the forces of darkness. And a good example that I like to just nerd out a little bit on the Lord of the Rings, there's this scene in Return of the King where Aragorn and the guys from Minas Tirith and the writers of Rohan, they all basically come to the gates of Mordor and they shout, let us in, right? And then the enemies, the guy, the forces of darkness come out and there's this exchange and basically the good guys, Aragorn and his, and his compatriots, Gandalf and all these guys, they fight at the gates of Mordor and defeat the forces of darkness on their end. And I think Tolkien is packaging Christianity in his books. And I think what he's trying to say is those gates of Mordor cannot stop the light. The light's going to go in and reclaim that space. And I really see that that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I am going to bust down the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. I'm going to go and with my power, with my atonement, I'm going to go into the regions of death and hell and reclaim the prisoners. This is reminiscent of the passage in Isaiah 61, where Jesus is going to free the prisoners. And there's just so much good stuff in Isaiah 61, but I love it where it says in verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the meek. And he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. I think a big part of verse one is God's power, Jesus's power to go in and to proclaim liberty to the captives that are bound. And what greater binding is there than death? And so he's going to bust down the gates of hell and go in and reclaim them. And there's this marvelous apocryphal book called the book of Nicodemus or the Acts of Pilate. And it's probably third century or maybe a fourth century text. It doesn't make the cut. The early church fathers are like, yeah, this probably isn't old enough to be considered canonical. But there's some cool stuff in here that as I read it, I was thinking, man, this is the idea of the gates of hell. There's this conversation that Satan has with hell itself And Jesus is about to die. And so it says, Satan, the prince and chief of death, said to hell, make thyself ready to receive Jesus. He's kind of bragging that he can defeat him. And then later on it says, but Satan, the prince of Tartarus, that's the Greek version of Hades, he basically says, I've sharpened a spear to thrust him through. Gall and vinegar have I mingled to give him drink. I've prepared a cross to crucify him and nails to pierce him. And his death is nigh at hand. And so he's kind of bragging. And he's kind of saying, I hold the keys of death and hell. He says, who is this Jesus, which by his own word without prayer has drawn dead men from me? And as Satan, the prince of hell spoke, Suddenly there came a voice of thunder and a cry, remove, O princes, your gates and lift ye up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. And then over and over again, there's this mention of the gates of hell are being busted down. And it even quotes Isaiah, where it says, Isaiah says, all the saints said to hell, open ye gates, open The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He's the king of glory. And the Lord looked down from heaven that he might hear the groanings of them that are in fetters and deliver the children of them that have been slain. And now, O thou most foul and stinking hell, open thy gates that the king of glory may come in. Break the bonds that could not be loosed. The forces of darkness say, who are you? Who are you? Over and over again. Who are you that thinks that you can set the prisoners free? And Jesus cries and says, I am Jesus. Let me in. And he does. He breaks down the gates of hell. And that's my testimony. I know this isn't a canonized text, the apocryphal book of Nicodemus, but as I read it, it really describes 
the notion of the gates of hell, they're not going to prevail. They're not going to stay shut. They're going to be broken. And I really see that in some of the literature from the Latter-day Saints. I see this in section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the righteous go into this place and they preach the gospel of good tidings. They preach to proclaim liberty to the captives, to comfort those that mourn, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And so in closing, I really like to think about Jesus as the embodiment of the victory over death. And I've never seen a resurrected person. But when I read about the resurrection, when I read about Jesus, when I read through Nephi 8 through 11, I feel the Holy Ghost. And so that's my testimony is I haven't seen these things physically, but spiritually I felt the presence of God, the the holiness associated with scripture. And it has helped me to try to be a better person, a better father, and it's really helped me to have hope. And I really like the idea that in the darkest times, when you read through Nephi 10, in the darkest times, there is the voice and they hear it. Thank you for joining us on this. I love this chapter where Jesus comes into their lives and they get to feel, they get to see and know and feel. And so we bear record like we've been invited. I have felt God. I know him. And it is our prayer, Mike and I, it is our greatest desire that somehow in this podcast, in these words, you might be able to know and feel so that you can bear record. And with that, we'll see you. Thanks, Bryce. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.